This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Open your Bibles to John 1, and we are going to finish what's called the prologue to John today, which means we're going to cover verses 6 through 18. But because they're so connected to the first five, I'm going to start and read verses 1 through 5, which we covered last week, and then going to go verses 6 through 18 following that. That's what we'll talk about today. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious revelation that this passage represents. And we pray today that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, that you would reveal the person and work of Jesus to us. Lord, you describe yourself as the light in this passage, and so we pray that as the light, you would enlighten our hearts by the Spirit as we read your Scripture. Would this Word, this Holy Word, this Scripture come alive to us today, that we might know you and trust you and believe in you. We pray that you would have your work here today, that you would change us, that as we behold you, we would become more like you. That's our prayer. Lord, Speak to us and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's kind of interesting that we're about to kind of become the focus of the nation in the next couple of weeks. Dallas is, uh, Arlington technically, but the Metroplex is as we uh, host the Super Bowl. And so if you've been following this, you know it's, it's sort of a, a big deal that uh, people are going to be coming here. And, you know, it'll be a great game and such, but one of the questions that arises is for all these people coming from all over the country and in some cases other parts of the world, what, what is there to see and do in Dallas? What, what do you do? What, what represents Dallas? And maybe you've ever, if you've ever had family or friends visit here, 
you've asked that question. You know, what, what kind of site can I take them to that would represent our area? Uh, what kind of experience could I give them that you would say, okay, this is kind of the Metroplex experience. If you see this or do this or visit this, this represents who we are. And uh, have you ever had that? It's kind of challenging to find what is the thing. I usually just take people from out of town and uh, serve them steak fajitas from La Hacienda. That's what I give them, and I say, this is just as good as it gets. This is it. You have tasted and seen that Texas is good and uh, expose them to that. But this last summer, I think I found the thing to do. This isn't a promo. I'm not, you know, advocating. But in my experience, this is the thing to do, and it's interesting because it ties into the Super Bowl. Um, last summer, when Rick Gamash was here visiting from Minnesota, and uh, he preached here on a Sunday morning, if you'll remember, he's a, a sports fan, <clears throat> like everybody outside of Dallas, he hates the Cowboys, but a sports fan. And uh, so we went and did the tour of Cowboys Stadium. And uh, he loved it as someone who doesn't like Dallas, or does, doesn't like Dallas sports anyway, doesn't mind Dallas. And I thought, that is the quintessential experience. Touring the stadium is the quintessential Dallas experience. You need to be a slight sports fan, but you don't have to like the Cowboys to appreciate the experience. And this is why it represents the Metroplex. First of all, it's big. It is the largest stadium, the largest NFL stadium, highest seating. I think the Super Bowl will set the record for the most people in the room at a Super Bowl in a stadium. So it's huge. It's got the hugest screen, the largest screen, video screen in the world. It's glitzy. And so that represents the Metroplex, big and glitzy. It's proud. I mean, when you drive up to it, it screams arrogance. I mean, it just does. It screams excellence, but it screams arrogance. As you walk around and they give you the tour and they tell you all the facts, it is, you know, it is however long the tour is. I mean, it is two hours of brag is all it is. And that's the Metroplex. That's just us. That's who we are. And so it, it describes it so well. And it's also friendly. People are very friendly, very hospitable. I mean, in the tour, you go on the field. You have time to hang around the field. You have a football. You throw around. We passed, scored touchdowns, did the whole deal on the field. I mean, who invites you into their field, onto their turf? That's welcoming. That's hospitable. And I thought, that's the Metroplex. Big, glitzy, arrogant friendly, hospitable, that stadium tour finds us. If you want to know the Metroplex, tour Cowboys Stadium. This passage asks a much more profound, serious, glorious question, and it answers it, I think, this way. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, if you want the quintessential definition of God, if you want the sight that defines God, if you want the experience that shows you God, then look at Jesus Christ. He is the light that has come to us. He is the light that has come to reveal. Light shines and reveals. And when the light shines in the person of Jesus Christ, what is revealed is God, for he is God, and he is the light who has come. And as the light, Jesus reveals God so that we may know him and believe in him. That's really the point of this passage, that as the light, Jesus reveals God so that we may know him and so that we may believe in him. There's three subsections to the passage we're looking at, 6 to 18. The first one is verses 6 through 8, and the point is that here is a witness to the light. 
a witness to the light. Jesus is the light. That's what verse 5 has said. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And so Christ is the light who comes to reveal God as God. And he tells us here in verse 6 that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So the John he's talking about here is John the Baptist. Uh, John never refers to himself as the author of this book. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So he doesn't refer to himself. And if we look at the other Gospels, we'll see the John that is being spoken of is John the Baptist. And next week, as we get to verse 19, we'll have a whole section on John the Baptist. But here we just get a mention of him, that there was a man sent from God. We learned several things about John the Baptist. He was sent. He was sent from God to prepare the way. He's a prophet, but he's not just any prophet. He's the last prophet, the great prophet, who would prepare the way for Christ by being the forerunner, the one who would be just before Jesus and announce his coming. So he's unique in that he is the one sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's sent from God. Secondly, we learn that he comes as a witness about the light. That's what verse 7 says. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So John is one who is a witness. What is a witness? A witness is someone who tells, who gives testimony. Think about a court. A witness is someone who gives testimony about what they've seen, what they've heard, what they know, what they've experienced. And they testify, they must testify truthfully. So John is one who truthfully testifies about what he has seen, what he has heard, what he knows to be true about God. He, and Christ in particular, he is sent as a witness and he's sent to be witness to the light, Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the past, this section, the witness to the light, tells us why he comes. He comes to give witness, verse 7, that all might believe through him. So he's come to give witness with the result that people would believe in the light, would believe in Jesus Christ, having heard the testimony of John. Now, this is an important section, and next week we'll really flesh it out when we look at John the Baptist. But it's important to note that God sends a witness. And more broadly, we could sort of get an overview of the Scripture and realize that God accomplishes his mission by sending. God is a sending God. We're calling this series Sent, the, the mission of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He sends his people. He sends a witness. He sent prophets who for years foretold the coming of the Messiah. He sent, verse 6, a man was sent from God. He sent John the Baptist to proclaim that Jesus is coming. The Messiah is here. Behold, look, see the Lamb of God, he says. So he sends Jesus. He sends John. He then sends Jesus, who is the light, the one who comes with a mission to rescue people, to save people and reconcile them to the Father. So he sends Jesus And then after Jesus, the mission still continues after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Because in Acts, God pours out the Holy Spirit on his people, the church. And this is what Acts 1.8 says. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come up on you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you will be sent, where? Jerusalem and further, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. You will be sent, and what will you be sent for? To be a witness. You will be my witnesses. So this is, this is how God accomplishes his task, his mission of saving people. He sends people to pro- proclaim the coming Christ so that people will be looking to Jesus and believing in him. He sends Christ, the very Savior, to reveal God, who, the one who is God, to give his life so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. And then after Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection and the ascension, once those are accomplished, he then sends the church so that they will be witnesses. So we're, we're very different than John in some ways. John the Baptist is unique. He's unique. He had a spot in salvation history pointing to Christ. But we have something very much in common with John the Baptist. We, too, are called to be a witness, to tell truthfully what we've seen and observed here in the Scripture, to be a witness to tell of Jesus Christ. And we are sent as witnesses by God, just as he is, that we might bear witness to the light, the one who is Jesus Christ. John pointed forward to the coming Christ. We point backward to the work of Jesus already accomplished in the cross. If you are here as a believer today, you have a point of identification with John. You are sent. You are a witness, a witness of Jesus Christ. It's worth our asking that if we also bear witness, according to Acts 1, if we also bear witness to the light, to whom is God calling us to bear witness? To whom? Where are we to bring light into darkness? To whom are we to testify of the scripture, of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Are we ready witnesses? John was a ready witness. We'll look in detail at that next week. But are we ready witnesses? That means, do we see that the light has come and that he has dispelled the darkness in our own soul by forgiving us of our sins through his death and resurrection, by obeying the law in our place? Do we see that light and then and believe in him And then do we see our role in communicating that light to others? Are we praying, God, please open a door that I could bear testimony, I could be a witness to the light. God, open a door that this week I could engage someone I know well or someone I just meet and be a testimony, to give a verbal testimony to the light. Our very lives are called to bear witness to the light. Jesus said in Matthew, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Don't hide your light, but let others see your light. Let them see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we bear witness to the light both verbally and both by our living as well. We're called. We're sent. We are to witness with our very lifestyle. So our witness is to say that we believe Jesus is the Son of God. We believe he's the one sent. We believe he's the Savior. He saved us. And here's how we're seeking to live. Here's how he's living through us to demonstrate who he is. So witness is not only verbal, but witness is 
by our life as well, that we give testimony to who he is, being the light of the world. So John the Baptist comes as a witness to the light. He's not the light. Jesus is the light. And after Jesus, the church is sent as witness. We are not ultimately the light. We reflect the one who is the light. The second section talks about a response to the light. So if the beginning is a witness to the light, this is a response to the light. Look at verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. This true light means genuine. Jesus is the genuine light which enlightens everyone. Now, this is an external, not an internal enlightening, because what he's about to say in the next verse is that not everybody believes, not that everybody receives him. So everyone's not internally enlightened, but externally enlightened as he comes bringing the message and doing the works of God the Father. And here's what it says. It says, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The beginning, what we studied last week, it says the word was with God. He was in the beginning. He had no beginning. Uh, He was there at the beginning. All things were made through him. And so here John reiterates that. Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus makes everything. But when he comes to the earth, those he made don't know him. They don't know him. The world did not know him. The world is ignorant. God comes to the planet he created, to the people he created, and they don't recognize him in the world. I mean, that is, that is shocking. If you were new to the Bible and new to Jesus, maybe you are, and you're reading that, you're thinking all of these grandiose initial statements, Jesus is God, Jesus is eternal, Jesus created everything, Jesus came to earth, and they didn't know him. That, that's ironic that the creation wouldn't know its creator, that they're ignorant. Now, the ignorance is culpable. It's a culpable ignorance because the Bible says that God has revealed himself through creation and God has revealed himself through conscience. Creation and conscience are two ways that we can know there, there is a God. But because of our sin, we suppress that knowledge, Romans says. We suppress that revelation. We sort of choose to be in the dark. We sort of choose to be ignorant. And so because of our sin, it, it masks our ability to see clearly the light. We're in darkness and we're ignorant, and we can't even on our own see the light when he comes. The world didn't know him. We are not only ignorant, but we are sinful. So we have resisted God. Our hearts are opposed to him, and thus we don't recognize him when he shows up. That's true. If you've uh, heard that maybe many of us heard the gospel a number of times before we responded to it. So we say, boy, the truth was staring us in the face, and yet we heard the truth and yet didn't respond because we are in darkness. Didn't know their creator when he came among them. Here's what's even worse, though. Verse 11, he came to his own, that is to the people of Israel, and his own people did not receive him. His own people, not only those whom he created, but those he had a special relationship with, the covenant people, those he had chose to reveal himself, those who had the written word of God of the Old Testament, those who had the temple and all that was 
all the worship of the temple which pointed to this Savior, the sacrifices which pointed to the Savior, the temple itself which pointed to the Savior, the prophets which pointed to the Savior, his own people, his own people didn't welcome him. The world didn't receive him, his people didn't, I'm sorry, the world didn't know him, his people didn't receive him is what this says. It's a tragedy, isn't it? We, we typically welcome dignitaries, don't we, in a special way. I hate to keep talking about the Super Bowl. I won't talk anymore about it in the next couple of weeks. But if you saw the news this week, there was a little bit of, a, um, uh, there's a little bit of action in the news when President Obama announced that if his team from his city, the Bears win the NFC Championship today, if they win today, they'll be in the Super Bowl. And he said that if the Bears win, he's coming to the Super Bowl. And so there was a scurrying with this news, if you followed it. Immediately, uh, this was a news item here. While the president may visit our area, the president may visit our region, the president may be coming to our city to watch a football game, but he may be coming, right? So that even though it's just a football game, it's a big deal. And so instantly there's a concern about, is there enough security? Is there enough security? Why is that? Because a dignitary... A person who, who holds a, a role of power and honor in our nation, our nation's president, is coming to our city to watch a football game. And so the security has to be right to protect him. And here's the deal. He will be recognized. When the president comes, it's not as if he won't be recognized. And he will be received. He won't show up to the game like a regular guy and be treated like a regular guy. I mean, the president's not going to park at a distance and catch a shuttle in with his bear's foam finger on the bus, go bears. That's not going to happen. He'll be received with honor. He's not going to be in the cheap, like standing room only. They're going to have the party pass standing seats. He's not going to be out there cheering and, you know, get the middle of a fist fight from a couple of drunks that are brawling out there. We're not going to put the president out there among the, the, the folks, that are the regular folks that are cheering. He will be guarded. He will be protected. He will be the most respected, known, special attendee to the Super Bowl. Everyone, the president is here, and that's appropriate. The president comes to a game. He should be protected and respected. He should be received. Now, how ironic it is that we would go crazy with security, and if he's there, it will be clear in the telecast. I would go crazy with respect for the president of the U.S. coming to a game, which is appropriate. But how much more God, the creator of the universe, comes to earth, and no one even recognizes him. He parks farther out than the normal shuttle service. He's born in a barn. And, and he, he lays among animals in a feeding trough. And except for a few people, they didn't even know he was coming. The world didn't know him. They didn't see him. And then when he comes and he demonstrates who he is, as we're going to see going through John, there's seven major signs that he's the Messiah, works of power that he does. His own people don't even recognize him. There's no reception. There's no protection and honor and care and dignity. There's murder. We, we kill God when he comes. We don't rece- and we dare not think we would be different if we were there. Oh, the world didn't know him. Well, if I would have been there, I would have known. Well, the people of God who had the whole Bible, didn't they know? They didn't receive him. Well, I would have. 
That, that's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is not that some people are smart enough, wise enough, good enough to respond, and you would have been in that category. The testimony of Scripture is everybody's in the dark. And when the light comes, we don't see him on our own. We don't know and we don't receive what we do see and what we do know. It's, it's a tragedy, but that's the truth. That's where all of us are. That's where all of us live. Now, here's the very good news is that some did receive him and some do receive him. Look at verse 12. But to his own people didn't receive him. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's saying there were some who did receive him and did believe in him. That they really mean the same thing. Receive and believe are parallel here. You know, sometimes we have trouble knowing what's the, what's the best language to describe my conversion experience. And, and sometimes we use language that's not altogether the most helpful, uh, like I accepted Christ. That, that can kind of sound like, yeah, I accept that. I mean, okay, he, I accept him, that's okay. Um, I, I'm not sure that has the best biblical precedent, but receiving Christ does have good biblical precedent. Believing in Jesus, being saved by God, you know, being, uh, receiving the new birth. Those are all very biblical ways of talking about him. And so here we say he, they, they receive him. Those who receive him and believe in him, to, him they, to them he gave the right to become children of God. John usually uses the verb believe as opposed to using the noun faith. So rather than speaking of having faith, John almost always re- records um, the idea of believing, which is an active trust in the Savior. And so those who are children of God are, are not just anyone. Those who are children of God are those who receive Jesus by actively believing in him. And let's note whom we're receiving. Who we're receiving is important here. I, I grew up on a teaching, and I'm sure it was very well meant. I'm not criticizing anybody's heart. But I grew up on a teaching that said you could accept Christ as your Savior and then later accept him as your Lord, which I never questioned at the time. It sounds like an installment plan to me now. But I don't really think you accept Jesus as your Savior. You're okay to save my sins, and later I'm going to submit to your Lordship. What has this passage, let's look at the context. What does this passage say about Jesus? Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. Jesus is God. Jesus created everything. And Colossians tells us that everything was created by him and for him. Everything is owned by Jesus, the ruler and creator. I'm not coming to him, doing him a favor by accepting him. I am receiving the ruler of the universe as my Lord, my Savior, my God. We're not adding him as a self-help to our lives. We're submitting to him as the creator, redeemer, ruler over all. That is salvation. I'm believing in the whole Jesus. I'm receiving the whole person of Christ. I'm not segmenting that process. Now, we don't know. You can become a Christian and not know everything about Jesus. None of us do. We may only have a window into who he is, faith the size of a mustard seed. We may have a small faith and God will save us. But ultimately, we receive God, the ruler in Jesus Christ. As Savior, yes. As Lord, yes. As God, yes. 
And this is telling. He, he says, well, who are these who receive him? Who are the ones who become children of God? All who did receive him, who believed in his name. His name represents all that he is, all his character, all his works. He gave the right to become children of God. It's probably speaking here of like giving a legal right. We're giving the legal right to be children to the Father. This may be adoption type language that, that, that we are legally declared children of the Father when we receive and believe in him. The next section is not so much adoption language, but the next section is birth language. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, people don't receive God. People don't know God. The world doesn't. People don't, uh, his own people don't receive him. But some people do receive him. How did those people receive him? Well, they didn't receive him because they were born into faith. In other words, who were born, born as children of God, not of blood. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're not Christians because of our heritage. In this case, it means that to be, you know, most accurately when this was the people to whom this was first written, it means that just because they were of Israel did not mean that they were children of God. Because his own people didn't receive him. So being a child of God isn't tied to who your parents are. It, it, it's not a given that if your parents are people of faith, that you will be a person of faith as well. And the history of Israel demonstrates that. God makes covenant with Israel, but not everyone who's part of Israel is true Israel. Not everybody's a believer. Here's how that translates for us today. If you're a young person here today, or even if you're not young, you are not born of God. You do not receive Christ. You do not believe in Christ. You are not a child of God because of your heritage. Your parents may be Christians. Your grandparents may be Christians. Your great-grandparents may be Christians. You are not a Christian because of that. You must be born. You must have birth yourself. God must be your father not your grandfather, not the father of your father, meaning your spiritual grandfather. God must be your father. So there's tremendous advantage. There's tremendous blessing being born into a family that is Christian. There's a huge blessing. There's a huge advantage there, but it does not guarantee your salvation. You must personally respond to God and know him. So it's not of blood. It's not our heritage. It's not of the will of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, I think the NIV kind of interprets what that means, helpfully so. The NIV writes, it is not of human decision. So those who are the children of God are not those who are born to Hebrew or Christian parents. That doesn't make you a child of God. They're also not those who are born by human decision. You don't receive new life because you make a decision. You don't decide on your own, apart from God, that you will be a Christian. It's not a human decision. We'll look at this in detail when we get to chapter 3. We'll look at this in detail in the theology class we're offering this spring, or in two weeks, whenever. Um, we're going to talk a lot about this, this point. But... You, it's not of the will of the flesh. That is, it's not human decision. It's not of the will of man. Or, as the NIV says, it's not of a husband's will. 
which may be like a human decision to procreate, maybe what's in, in mind there, a husband's will, kind of saying this, as a human, uh, as a married person, you could choose to have children, so to speak. You could attempt to conceive, but you can't guarantee conception. And the same is true spiritually. You can't make someone, you can't guarantee new spiritual life. So it's not based on who your parents are and what your heritage is. It's not based on your human decision. It's not based on your making it happen. What's it based on? Those who were born of God. God must give new birth. God must create new life. Do we make a decision then to respond to him? Of course we do. I mean, he did say believe, he did say receive, so we see both human responsibility, those who received him, those who believed, that's human responsibility. We see sovereign grace, God's acting and choosing, born of God. We see them both in this passage, but where is the accent? The accent is not human decision, the accent is not the will of man, the accent is God's work. God's choosing, God's saving. Both are present, but which is highlighted? It is the work of God. So if you are here as a Christian today, your story is, I have been born of God, praise God. I am not crediting human decision. I am not smarter, I am not more holy, I am not better, I am not wiser, I am not more spiritual, I don't have a better background, and that means I'm a Christian. What differentiates me from anyone else is I'm born of God. To God be all praise for my salvation. I cannot take credit that I know the light. The light came and the darkness could not stand against it. The light of God came. He opened my eyes because I wouldn't have known him. He opened my heart to receive him because I wouldn't have received him. Because I'm born of God. So from the very beginning, we're getting this theme. This is big in John 6. We'll we'll get this throughout, that God is the one who comes and bring salvation. Do we respond? Indeed, we receive and believe. Exactly how those coincide? Ah, we're at some mystery there, to be sure. We can't explain every mystery, but we can accent what God accents in the Scripture, and the accent here is born of God. So, here is a response to the light, a witness to the light, a response to the light. God changes lives and hearts, born of him, and lastly, Jesus reveals the light. The light of God, verse 14. And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is kind of what the whole passage has been leading up to. That the word, the eternal God, the all-powerful God, The God without beginning, the God who created everything, that God became human. That's what this verse means. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, it doesn't mean that by becoming flesh, he ceased to be God. Becoming flesh doesn't mean not becoming God, leaving his oddness behind or something like that. That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is that the eternal Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Word, Jesus, uh, takes on flesh, that he becomes human. What's, what's in view here is the Christmas story, that as a baby he is born. He's fully God and fully man. And, and John makes the point here that he dwelt among us. 
dwelt among us. The word dwelt is, is really filled with, with Old Testament imagery, theological imagery. He dwelt among us. It doesn't mean that he just lived down the block. It does mean that. He did live down the block. He came and lived a very normal life. But it means something much more than that. The, the word literally means to pitch one's tent. To pitch, to put up a tent. That's what he's talking about here. It is a picture of what happened in the Old Testament at the tent of meeting or what was also known as the tabernacle. Sometimes people say the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us or he pitched his tent among us because it's a picture of what happened in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, after the exodus out of Egypt, God met with his people in a unique and in a special way in a tent of meeting also called the tabernacle. Later, they would build a temple which served as the same function, the place where God was uniquely present for his people, the place where his people worshipped, the place where sacrifices were offered for the forgiveness of the people's sins. And so what he's saying is, in the Old Testament, God was present, uniquely present, savingly present in, his, in, in, the, in the temple, or in, the, in this case, the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was the place you encountered God. The tent of meeting was the place where you offered sacrifice and received forgiveness of sins. And what he's saying is the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the temple all pointed to this one. They pointed to Jesus Christ because in Jesus, God came to us in a way he had never come before. Everything has changed now. Those means of God relating with his people pointed forward to the day when he would take on flesh, when he would become human. God's unique dwelling place under the old covenant was the tent of meeting and later the temple. Under the new covenant, God dwells with us in the person of Jesus. And after Jesus' saving work, he pours out the Spirit so that the church is the temple of God. He indwells us as gathered people here together. He has come in a new and a better way in Jesus, God with us. So the word became flesh and God dwelt uniquely among his people. We have seen his glory. That's language from the tent of meeting. We've seen his glory, that the glory of God in the temple later and now in Christ, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Look at verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I think what he's doing there is he's connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament. The next, the next statement is, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. God has always related to his people by grace. The Old Covenant is God relating to his people by grace. God choosing a people for himself, that's grace. They didn't merit or earn it. God choosing a people, choosing to bless a people, that's grace. When we look at the Ten Commandments, which is God's law, part of God's law, primary part of God's law, how does he start? He says that he is the God who delivered them out of Egypt. So they should have no other gods before him. But the deliverance comes first. Grace precedes law, even under the Old Covenant. So grace upon grace is there is grace in the Old Testament, and now on top of that grace, we have new grace. We have new grace for old grace in Jesus Christ. Glorious grace in Jesus. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God, he says, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is Jesus, the light. This is the light, making God known. What is Jesus, as we read the rest of the Gospel of John, what, what will we be looking for? We'll be looking for the making known of God. That's why Jesus comes. He makes God known so that we would believe and receive. These things are written that we may believe that he is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that we might have life in his name. John makes the point here that no one has seen God. In the Old Testament, no one sees the fullness of God. There's a few people that see like the back of God. Or, but no one has seen the fullness of God, for you cannot see God and live in his blazing, glorious holiness. We can't see him in this condition. One day we will see him as he is. When he returns, we are resurrected with resurrected bodies, and we, we share eternity under his rulership in a new heavens and a new earth. Then we will see him. But until then, we can't see him in all his fullness. But here's what he says. We see him in Jesus. Jesus has made him known. It's an interesting word, this make known, this, this verb to make known. It's, it's, the original word is the word we get our word exegesis from. What is exegesis? It's not when Jesus leaves the room. That's not it. Exegesis is... Um, Exegesis is, when we look at a text, it is clarifying the meaning. It is understanding what is being communicated in the text to make known. It's to clarify the meaning. And so really what we could say there is that Jesus makes known the Father. Jesus exegetes the Father. That is, Jesus explains, clarifies, reveals the Father through his life. That's what Jesus comes to do. He gives his life for us as a sign of the grace, as a revelation of the grace and mercy and love of the Father. He demonstrates God's power through his miracles to demonstrate the omnipotence of the Father. He cares for outcasts, hurting, dying, suffering people to demonstrate, to exegete the compassion of the Father. He serves to demonstrate really his own humility as he reveals the mercy of the Father coming to serve those who didn't even know him and didn't even receive him. He comes ultimately giving his life, dying in our place, being sacrificed for us to demonstrate the grace, to exegete that God is gracious and holy. Our sin is so serious that there was no human way, human alone, to forgive our sin. There was no way that one of us, on our own, could forgive our own sin. It took God becoming a man. Why is that? Because only God could perfectly fulfill the law and obey the law in all of its detail so that that obedience could be credited to us. So Jesus is Obedience to the law is credited to us when we believe him. No man alone could do that, only the God-man. And God couldn't pay for our sins alone unless he became man so that a man really is dying as a substitute. A real man is dying as a substitute in our place, taking on all of our sin that we might be forgiven. We all fall in Adam, and all who believe in Christ are forgiven in him. Christ, the second Adam. So he must be man 
to pay for man's sin, and he must be God to obey God's law perfectly. Jesus, the perfect God-man, reveals the nature of God through his work. If you're here today and you have never met this God, I want to give you a promise. Jesus makes this promise in John chapter 6. He says that anyone who comes with to me, I will never cast him away. So the part I was talking about earlier about you must be born of God, if you come to Jesus Christ and want to know him, want to have your sins forgiven, want to follow him, want to love him, uh, that's born of God. You don't have to worry about, well, am I or am I not? Jesus says that that's comfort for the believer. Jesus says that if you come to me, I'll welcome you. So the call to you is not figure out, am I born of God or born of the human decision or born of heritage? The call to you is believe and receive. And if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, if you've never received him as the Savior, particularly if you're relying on one of those other things, like my parents are Christians, my family's Christian, my environment's Christian, you must not rely and count on that. You must be born of God. So you respond to him. You believe. You receive. You trust. He says, if you come to me, I will never cast you away. He'll receive you. And you do that by simply acknowledging, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. I need forgiveness for my sins. And I'm turning to, from my sin, I'm turning to you, Jesus. I'm believing you. I'm receiving you as the one who died for me. I'm trusting you as the Savior. I'm trusting you as my God, my Lord. I'm putting faith in you. That's how you receive. That's how you believe. And for those of us who are believers in the room today, may we glory in the person and work of Christ, who he is and what he's done. May we glory to the degree that light shines from our lives, that we're so enamored with the person and work of Christ. We are beholding him and we are becoming more like him so that we are a witness, we are a testimony by our lives and by our words. May we be people that are praying this week, where can I testify about this Jesus? Who can I, who can I point to Jesus? Who can I talk to and point them to Jesus who gave his life? to forgive us because he is on a mission to save people. And how can I celebrate the grace of God given to me? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Amazed that I know the Father. How can I know the Father? Jesus reveals him. Why, did I know, why do I know him? Why did I receive him? Because God gave me birth. That's mercy. So may we revel in his grace and in his mercy. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.